Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Well, we've got yet another significant Supreme Court decision, this time on the EPA, and I'm fortunate enough to have as my guest again today, Kevin Goodsman. Kevin is not only the best-selling author of several books having to do with constitutional issues, including Thomas Jefferson, Revolutionary, A Radical Struggle to Remake America, James Madison and the Making of America, and The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution. He also holds several advanced degrees, including a law degree from the University of Texas at Austin and an MA and a PhD in American history from the University of Virginia. So I'm very glad to have him here to lend his expert opinion on this latest EPA decision. Kevin, welcome to the show. Happy to be here, Tom. Just as some context for newer listeners... Going all the way back to episode one of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you were the first guest on the first episode, and that episode was called, How Can Biden Mandate Vaccines Without Congress? And I'm going to encourage people to go back and listen to that as a basis for the kind of discussions we've been having about what's commonly referred to as the administrative state all of these agencies that make regulations, including the EPA. And what I was asking you on that first episode was, well, why isn't that legislating? And basically your answer was, it is. And that's the problem, that letting some executive branch agency write rules is basically usurping the legislative power delegated to Congress by the executive. So I don't know if you remember on episode 28, <laughs> These, I know you do a lot more interviews than just this show, but we talked about something called the non-delegation doctrine, which is basically the idea that Congress can't delegate its legislative power away. So now we have this EPA decision by the Supreme Court coming on the heels of other rather momentous decisions that you and I talked about a few episodes ago. First of all, what is your overall impression of the EPA decision? Well, 
it's not optimal, but it's a good thing. So essentially what had happened there was that the EPA decided to take what you might consider programmatic steps to make authentic policy pronouncements in promulgating rules. And the Supreme Court said, no, no, if you're going to have so fundamental a a policy decision as this come from the federal government, it's got to be Congress that makes it, not the EPA. So on one hand, you might think, well, this is not an optimal objection from the Supreme Court because it ought simply to have said that there shouldn't be such there shouldn't be such rules coming from the federal government at all. It's not clear that the federal government has a constitutional authority to make environmental law. But on the other hand, it certainly is a good thing for the Supreme Court to be saying there is a limit even within the general ambit of making regulations about the about the environment to what the EPA can do. So I see this as progress. We've had a long time in America when these administrative agencies were free essentially to make law and courts attitude was well as long as for example the EPA is doing something that's related to the environment we'll let it go ahead and do that. And the current court majority says well that's true to some extent but if we get to the point that what the EPA is doing is more than just implementing a general policy that came from Congress. That is, if the EPA is making a policy itself, then it's exceeding its legitimate authority, and that kind of decision has to be made by Congress. So we might think, well, there shouldn't be administrative agencies making rules in the first place. That ought to be done by Congress, too. Uh, That's probably my position in general. But on the other hand, this still is progress from a situation in which the federal government has hundreds of thousands of bureaucrats making what amount of laws without anybody having any oversight. So I do see this as a positive result from the Supreme Court, even if it didn't go as far as I might like. I went through the decision looking for mentions of the non-delegation doctrine. It's basically this idea that Congress can't delegate its legislative authority. And it was mentioned a lot fewer times than I expected. And at least one of the four or five instances, it was just related to how the states have strong non-delegation doctrines. But the doctrine that was mentioned a lot more was one called major questions. Can you elucidate that a little bit? Well, the non-delegation doctrine is, again, the idea that's stated in Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution. The very first thing in the Constitution after the preamble is that the legislative authority will be in a Congress of the United States. And so that means the legislative authority won't be in the EPA, for example. Now, this major question doctrine is the idea that, well, we have an administrative agency, in this case, the EPA, that's making rules. But those rules are supposed to be filling out major policies that have been laid down by Congress. So although the EPA does more of policy making than we might prefer, still the overarching policy is to have been made by Congress. In this particular case, what the court majority decided was that 
the new rules that were being considered in the case were so significant as to amount to policy decisions, and those had to be made by Congress. Does that make sense? So it's essentially kind of a halfway point between saying administrative agencies can do whatever they want that's related to their ambit and saying no administrative agencies can't make any rules at all that amounts to making laws and Article 1, Section 1 says that's for Congress. So how are you supposed to know? Is there any objective measure for no, now they're actually going off on their own or no, here they're following a policy by Congress? Is this one of those, I'll know pornography when I see it or? That's exactly what it is. Yeah. (laughs) And you know, I think laymen, that is legal laymen, kind of have the idea that, well, there are laws out there and they're supposed to be followed, but really there's always a ton of play in the joints of significant legal diktats. And it's another way to say that is it's always going to matter who the administrators are and who the judges are. One major problem in American government is only liberals and people further to the left want to be in administrative agencies. So what what libertarian or what conservative would say, my career goal is to be an administrator in the EPA? The answer is nobody. So you end up with people who are at least sympathetic to the EPA and perhaps upset with the EPA for not having done more, who decide when they're, you know, 22, 23, getting out of public affairs school or having newly minted law degrees or whatever they're doing and deciding, okay, I'm going to go be a an administrative judge or an administrative rulemaker. And that means there's always going to be pressure on the joints of these agencies to make them claim more authority, claim more supervisory responsibility. And essentially, they're wanting to exceed the understood limits of whatever authority Congress had intended to delegate for them. So how can we resolve that problem? Well, first thing is, obviously, that's why we're talking about it, is appoint good judges, appoint judges who are really interested in these constitutional questions. But then it would be better if we're going to have these agencies to have people who think it would be good to limit what they do working in them. And I fear, I know, that we don't have that. So people who are in administrative agencies generally are always sympathetic with the administrative agencies. Yeah, that makes sense. I know that you had said this is a good move. It shows a change in direction, at least. Is there any danger, though, that, okay, so we've got these judges that Trump appointed, and of course, the political opposition considers this the end of the world. And these are the extremists, the media is telling everybody, oh, my God, you know, we're we're back to the 14th century with these Supreme Court justices. Well, no, there's only three of them were appointed by Trump. The others were appointed by the Bushes. So it's not the radical right that's doing this. It's really, it's Trump and the Bushes. Who would describe that as the right wing of the Republican Party? I don't think anybody would. Well, they're portraying it that way. And the reason I say all this is that, is there a danger that, okay, we've confronted now in, in this one, the non-delegation doctrine, and in the Roe and gun rights, the incorporation doctrine, and that if this is the extreme, if this is 
all that the public could possibly tolerate, and half of them think we're lighting a fire to all of civil society, and this is as far as we can go. In the great so-called arc of history, does this represent more the extent like, well, it's all progressive from here, like this is the best we're ever going to do? Or do you think it's, as you said, more that we're going to chip away here and go in another direction? Well, as people who may have read my book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution, will know, I think we've been on the same path to the, until this point. We had been on the same path for, since 1937. So we had majorities on the Supreme Court beginning in 1937 that were saying we're going to let the federal administrative agencies run riot. We're going to invent new rights that the federal courts are going to enforce against states. We're going to invent new remedies to supposed ills like statewide tax increases to pay for construction of new integrated schools and enforced by, you know, imposed by federal judges. And we're going to bust tens of millions of kids every day across town to, to have racial mixing. And we're just going to keep doing more and more things that move in the same direction. And no, it's not the case that having had a non-left-wing majority on the Supreme Court for a year and a half, suddenly the 84 years of precedent that people had been complaining about since God knows when are, are going to all have been negated. This really is like a big, big, you know, super tanker that's out in the middle of the ocean and it's going you know, 25 nautical miles per hour, and you're trying to turn it around. So we have just begun to steer a little bit to starboard, and people are already in an apoplexy. I think the reason a lot of experts in an apoplexy is they realize what I'm saying is true, that this is the beginning of something, and they want to, they want to nip it in the bud. But let's not get upset with this because it hasn't achieved the entire task of overturning 84 years of bad precedents at once. That, that's, that just can't happen. Let's take a short break for this important message. If you're enjoying the content here at Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, please check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. You can become a supporter of the show at any level you wish, starting at just $3 per month. All members get machine transcripts of all podcasts and access to my members-only MeWe group. If you're an all-access patron, you'll also get special member-only content, including exclusive blog posts and videos. And VIP patrons receive access to all my online courses and a free signed copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. So again, check it out at patreon.com slash Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Become a supporter of the show today. And now let's get back to our episode. The way that federal courts work is not that they pull out a law book and say, okay, we don't like these six sections and half of that one. And they have to take cases that come to them on appeal in the case of the Supreme Court. And then they generally only are supposed to decide the case that is raised by the 
appellant in response to whatever happened in the lower court that he didn't like. And so it takes a very long time to change an entire legal culture. It took a long time for us to get here from 1937, and it would take a long time to undo what's been done since 1937. People may be hearing this and thinking, well, why am I even interested in that? And the answer is because since 1937, we've had a situation in which federal judges increasingly claimed authority to make all kinds of legislative decisions. And then Congress said, and we want all kinds of unnamed bureaucrats to make legislative decisions on the understanding that the people who are in those bureaucracies were all going to agree with whatever goal we had in creating them. And so the federal rulemaking agencies essentially never sleep. They're always, they're always trying to go in the same direction. And again, we've had a few months now of a Supreme Court majority. We've had one term when they heard cases that were going to be evaluated from this new majority perspective. And I think there's been just amazing progress. I never thought I'd live to see such a thing. This, this to me, was really astounding. It's as if my book had been implemented. <laughs> I never thought it would happen. So I'm very happy about it. It's not perfect. It's going to take a long time. But I think as long as we don't have, you know, three or four Democratic presidential wins in a row, which is how we got in this mess in the first place, we had five in a row. As long as we don't have three or four Democratic Party presidential victories in a row, this new majority is going to continue to be a majority. And you've talked, I believe, in your book and also on some of our previous discussions about the way lawyers are educated of Supreme Court justices and federal judges are almost always lawyers. I guess that's not 100%, but pretty close. Every justice has been a lawyer. They don't have to be. The Constitution doesn't require that they be, but they all have been. So we can talk a little bit about how this might change the way lawyers are educated. Yeah, well, that's part of the fun. Now, people who know anybody who's been to law school or people who've been to law school or people who read about law school, which, by the way, why would you do that? But will know that the culture of American law schools is just uniformly on the left. If you start with, you know, Yale Law School, which is generally rated the best American law school, I think Chicago is better, but Yale's usually rated number one. And just go down the roster, you'll have to go a long way before you find one that has more than one or two people who, who are libertarian or conservative on the faculty. So for example, Randy Barnett, famous libertarian legal and constitutional scholar told me that at Georgetown, where I think there are 60 some odd people on the faculty, there are three libertarians and no conservatives on the faculty at Georgetown Law, Law Center, right? So that is typical, except that there are three libertarians. <laughs> so essentially what this, what this culture does is just reinforces itself. And of course, even people who are conservatives and end up on the Supreme Court are libertarian inclined. They're going to find out that everybody who's evaluating them, everybody before whom they're speaking, everybody who's writing about them in law reviews is critical. If they don't start coming out with some kind of friendly to liberals results to that, I think helps to explain why Anthony Kennedy veered to the left on social issues over his tenure. So now, on the other hand, one, one ironic or one delightful aspect of what's happened is since American lawyers are mainly trained in law schools by reading transcripts of judicial opinions, and since now the reigning judicial opinions are going increasingly to be 
libertarian or conservative, those same left-wing majorities on faculties of places like Yale Law School are going to be teaching students law by having them read, you know, the writings of Clarence Thomas. And that that they're going to have to do whether they like it or not, because that's the way American legal education works. You read case books and case books are full of the the reigning opinions across the different areas of the law. So I think it's going to be kind of amusing if we have five or 10 more years of this current majority impulse to contemplate the extent to which people are going to be trained in law in America by reading Clarence Thomas or Sam Alito or Neil Gorsuch or Brett Kavanaugh. That'll be kind of amusing. So anyway, it'll be totally unlike the way it worked when I was in law school. I got my law degree in 1990 and my three years of law school, probably the name I saw most on the opinions was William Brennan. William Brennan was just the opposite of what you'd think would be a good constitutional authority. He told one of his famously or infamously told one of his clerks at one point, around here, I operate on the basis of the rule of five. With five votes, I can do anything. So he didn't care at all what the law was. He just (laughs) thought about the question, what policy outcome do I want? And he didn't make any bones about it. And in fact, when when President Reagan and Attorney General Meese first started talking publicly about juris, what Meese called a jurisprudence of original intention, Brennan gave a speech in which he said it's arrogant to think you can know what people thought language was going to mean when they authored it. So why should we even bother? Now, his attitude was, I don't care what the law was supposed to do. The question is, what do I think would be a good outcome? So he, he thought the Supreme Court should be a kind of super legislature and was extremely successful in putting together majorities across the wide range of law. So I remember, you know, I took property, oil and gas, civil procedure, besides, you know, criminal and constitutional and that kind of stuff. And basically in every class, I was reading William Brennan's opinions, just awful. Now, on the other hand, I think within five or 10 years, his name will be scrubbed from the books and it will be, again, the people will be reading Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas, which be just a huge improvement because those people actually care about the idea of having a constitution in which authority is allocated among the branches and between federal and state governments. And so that's, to me, that's law. That's the alternative to legislating, which is what Brennan really was in the business of doing. It's, it's following the law, giving some respect to the idea that the electorate, the people ought to be deciding what kind of society it has by making constitutions and making statutes. So here we are. As I said before, I never I never thought this would, I didn't think I would live to see this happen. It's really kind of amazing. I never thought we'd see Roe overturned. Yeah, even as Trump was making those three appointments, I was just kind of thinking, okay, which ones of these guys are going to be the new suitor, right? But it, it's, <laughs> it, it's just bound to happen. It's never going to, we're never going to get to a point at which 84 years of history are going to be reversed, put behind us. It's amazing. We could go back to actually having a constitution that binds people in government. Just on the law professor question, as these decisions come in and become part of the canon, or for lack of a better word, that is taught to law students, is there enough professionalism amongst the professors at Yale Law School to just present these as they are, or are these just going to be presented as, well, we got to make sure we undo this. You know, this is just this terrible turn that the courts have taken. To some extent, that depends on personality of individual instructors. But the fact that you start by reading a persuasive account of 
what the role of an administrative agency ought to be before you get to the question what the outcome was in the case, that'll be a novelty. It didn't used to be that these kinds of questions were even considered. So again, back to one of Brennan's opinions, right? If, if it had to do with, for example, invent, well, one thing that Brennan came up with that I had to read about in law school was the idea that a state could no longer require a minimum residency before one became eligible for in-state welfare payments. So people began in the 1970s to move from one state to another because they realized they could get higher welfare payments. And so some of the states had laws that said, well, you have to live here for six months before you're eligible for welfare in California, say. And Brennan says, no, we should have freedom of movement. Everybody should be able to move to California and immediately sign up for welfare payment, right? And so then the discussion you might have about that in class would be based on Brennan's arguments about you know, how hard it was for people who were moving not to get welfare payments and this kind of stuff. And nothing really at all to do with what you might think would be constitutional issues like does the federal constitution require people to require states to pay new new entrance welfare payments immediately? You know, so anyway, the point is, I think at least now there will be a non-left opinion discussed in the class, right? That you can't avoid reading Supreme Court opinions in law school. You can't avoid assigning them. If you're going to talk about, quote unquote, constitutional law, well, that's whatever they're saying now. That's not what Brennan wrote 30 years ago, although it was last you know, Tuesday. But it'll, it'll be a totally different kind of experience. It's going to be a totally different kind of profession now to be a law professor. I think it's just amazingly enjoyable to think about that. And however the professor might want to color how he presents this, it's better than them never even hearing these arguments. Yeah, that's my point. Right. They never heard them before. Right. Yes. That's the point. Yeah. And of course, now when you get to the bar exam, you're going to have to know not your professor's criticism of this stuff. You're going to have to know this stuff. So to some extent, legal training is about learning what the justices have said. And so... We are going to have a totally different kind of product for people to imbibe on their way to becoming lawyers than, than we have now, or certainly than we had when I was going to law school and taking bar exam. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, It helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. How could I think about love with a girl like you? 
talking about here is not our policy preferences on any of these issues, but it's it's a matter of who decides. So when you're talking about the EPA and what they can can and can't do, it's a matter of whether the executive branch or the Congress has this power. Nobody elected the executive to make laws. They only elected the executive to execute the laws. And, and more importantly, the people in the executive branch we're talking about here were never elected by anybody. They're just bureaucrats. And so, again, a, a lot of what the administrative agencies do is promulgate their. So you might have a general policy statement from Congress in the form of a statute, but then the way that's quote unquote implemented is up to the administrative agency, which they do according to the Administrative Procedures Act. It, it involves draft rulemaking and then promulgation of the rules so that people can, the public can comment on them before they're finally issued as legally enforceable. And so what the, what the court is saying in this EPA case where we've been talking about is we don't want the overarching policy decisions to be made by administrators. They have to be made by Congress if they're going to be for the federal government at all. Right. So the reason I brought that up is that there's so much chatter that I see about whether this decision is right based on whether you think the EPA does a good job or not. And this is all within the federal government. I mean, who has what power within the federal government? And then when you get out to Roe versus Wade and the recent decision about New York State gun licensing, this is more a question of does the federal government have the power at all or do the states? And I think really to drive home the point we're trying to make here is that I think you and I both support gun ownership strong, how would I put it, support the Second Amendment strongly, but the Second Amendment was never intended to apply to the state governments, and I know you mentioned on your last appearance you didn't like the New York state gun decision, and that's a matter of, hey, I want everybody to be able to possess a firearm, but I don't want the federal government deciding what the rules are in New York. I want New York deciding that so that in my state, uh, if we have a different idea, then you know we can make more liberal gun rules. In other words, easier to get a gun, you can have more kinds of guns, etc. So I'm trying to kind of set up this question. Do you see a danger with that New York state gun law that it's giving more power to the federal government that in the future, a liberal court might limit gun ownership via some new decision that says, yeah, everybody has the right to have a gun, but we're going to write a whole bunch of rules about it into a Supreme Court decision. Is that something we should be worried about? Well, the nice thing about what you're saying and the nice thing about other discussions of this question that I've heard over the last few weeks is that it reflects the fact that people are finally realizing that ultimately this is political. <laughs> What the Constitution is going to be said to mean is political. That is, on one hand, you have the Democratic Party and some people in the Republican Party who generally think that federal judges should just implement whatever policy they prefer. That is the people, not the judges. And on the other hand, you have people who think the Constitution should be enforced according to the lights with which it was adopted. So... Yes, I think if we're going to have the incorporation doctrine, incorporate the whole damn thing. But on the other hand, we shouldn't. So as long as we have it, I guess 
you might as well enforce the, the Second Amendment against the states too. But what I would generally favor is getting rid of the incorporation doctrine in relation to every single bit of the first eight amendments. None of them should be enforceable against state governments because that's not what the due process clause of the 14th Amendment is about. So it ought to be up to people in New York to make their gun laws. It ought to be up to them to decide. It ought to be up to people in Louisiana to decide whether raping a little kid should be a capital crime. It ought to be up to people in Indiana to decide whether their small town has to have a topless bar in it. It ought to be up to people in a little town in Ohio to decide whether their city seal has a cross on it. These are all, by the way, actual cases that have been decided by the Supreme Court in the wrong way. And so that's where I hope we're going to end up. Right now, where, where we are is the court has finally said, well, okay, we've incorporated virtually everything else, so we're going to incorporate the Second Amendment too. And liberals are all howling. This is unbased. Really? Well, okay. So good. You're right. It is unbased. Only to the extent that all the other stuff you've been doing since 1937 is not without any basis. We ought to get rid of all that too. I, the best example of how outrageous some of these decisions can be, like some of the stuff that's done in the name of the incorporation doctrine has been just, just beyond comprehension. And my, my say my favorite example, but I think the strongest example is a case called Kennedy versus Louisiana, in which Justice Kennedy wrote the majority opinion for the court. And he said, According to the evolving standards of decency of maturing society, we the the incorporation of the cruel unusual punishment statement in the eighth principle in the Eighth Amendment into the due process clause of the Fourteenth Amendment and thereby enforce making it enforceable against state governments meant that a guy who had raped a small kid could not be given capital punishment. Now you know in Louisiana people wanted. They, their legislature, I think, had always had a, a capital punishment for raping a kid. But the court said, well, we just decided that's not that important. So this is part of the evolving standards of decency of maturing society. And one thing you can say about, I think, any state in America is if you went out and ran for a state senator, I'm sure even in Oregon, if you went out and ran for state senator on the ground of vote for me, I'm going to make sure we don't have capital punishment for raping little kids you would not be elected, right? You could not be elected anywhere. But but the Supreme Court could do that. And people said, well, look at Justice Kennedy. He doesn't like capital punishment. You know what? Whether you like capital punishment, Justice Kennedy, is not supposed to be your issue. And anyway, the bottom line is incorporation is without foundation. Republican government is better. And I hope we're on the verge of of re-examining this. Fortunately, Justice Thomas and his concurrence said, yeah, we got to think about all these cases. This is not really only about abortion. We actually ought to think about all other substantive due process cases. That would include Kennedy versus Louisiana, my, my pet peeve. Oh, and one more thing. The girl in that case apparently is infertile. I think she was like eight years old or something. She's wrecked for life. Great. So what just seems completely lost, and I'm just judging from Facebook and Twitter, so you know it is what it is, but the Supreme Court decision on Roe actually limited what New York could do. Like New York could now, because Roe is overturned, make their abortion laws even more liberal. And as abhorrent as that might be to some of the justices, I would imagine, who made this decision, that's what they were deciding as well. And I think the other thing is, is this general 
You and I are, are about the same age. So we remember a time when politics was not this hateful. I mean, people didn't hate each other like this. And I see if we could get back to some kind of federalism that it's kind of a way out of this. I don't see another way out of it besides something bloody and awful. Well, I don't want to play down the nastiness of politics in the 80s or the 70s or, you know, but yeah, one problem with all the nationalization of every question, one problem with the incorporation doctrine, for example, is every, every issue becomes a national issue. And it might be that in your state, for example, in Louisiana, whether people who rape little kids should get capital punishment, that was never going to be controversial, right? There never would have been any issue about that. So, and there's not going to be an issue about it in Oregon. They're not, they're not going to do that. And that's not going to be controversial. And on the other hand, what we end up with not only is a kind of usurp, well, it is usurpation of authority by the federal courts, but we also end up with imposition of one policy on the whole country, even though different parts of the country are so much different. And people in different parts of the country authentically want different government. There's no reason, I think, there's no reason why they shouldn't have it. There's just no reason. Yeah, I, I'm constantly reminded in these discussions of our friend Brian McClanahan and his great writing and podcasting on what he calls the Yankee problem. Now, being a almost lifelong New Yorker who used to pull for Thurman Munson and Bucky Dent, I know what he's really talking about <laughs> is not just people from New York or the Northeast, but this mindset that, look, I have to decide how everybody is living everywhere. And, and this attitude even extends to the U.S. foreign policy, that we've got to be out there telling the Afghans how to govern their society. And, and, it, and it's so counterproductive to have this, you know, during the Afghan war, while there were still American forces there, when they first started putting up the pride flag over the embassy, I remember the, the day I heard that saying to my son, who's a college-age guy, do you, how can this possibly help American diplomacy in Afghanistan? Is this going to persuade Afghans to side with the United States in the ongoing war in Afghanistan, having a pride flag over the U.S. embassy? Does that, that make any sense? But clearly the people who are working for the State Department don't care whether it helps American diplomacy. That's not their, they really sincerely don't care. So actually, I, one of the Gulf states, maybe it was Bahrain, I can't remember, one of them told, one of them called in the ambassador, I think the, the emir or what, whoever it was. Anyway, the ruler of the state called in the American ambassador and told him, take down the pride flag over your embassy. Like, do not have that there. We do not want it. And so the point is, there's this impulse, as you were saying, Brian calls it the Yankee problem. Actually, I think he got that term from his dissertation advisor, Clyde Wilson. I think he called it the Yankee problem first. But but the Yankee problem is the idea that, okay, here are our ideas. They are per se correct, and we're going to put them in your face. And, the, you know, the pride flag in Muslim countries is not going to make anybody more pro-American, for example. So people seem not to care. There's something about the virtue signaling that they, they get, a, I guess they get a kick out of it. The idea that there's not capital punishment for child rapists in Louisiana makes somebody in, you know, Massachusetts feel good at night. I don't know. It doesn't just doesn't work for me. Yeah. And there's all kinds of, I mean, first living in a bubble is one problem. And then the unbelievable arrogance 
that you know everything, you're absolutely right, and everyone else is absolutely wrong. This is really what's behind all of this. Yes, um, yes. That uh, was Brennan's, Justice Brennan's opinion. It's like, And he literally said, I operate according to the rule of five. And he thought it was a joke even to care what people who thought the Constitution was going to, you know, what people thought the Constitution was going to mean when they were adopting it. Why would you care about that? What's more important is, do you like my policy preferences? Yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. law. Is that, you know, the part of the problem is judges are supposed to be enforcing law, not making law. And this is just an alternative to it. You can't really have a Republican government with policy decisions by elected officials if this is the way the judges and the bureaucrats are going to behave. And then go on and say, but we must save our democracy. <laughs> right, right. And you save your democracy by having the judges continue to mandate an abortion policy for the whole country. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that really, seriously, people have been saying this was a threat to our democracy. You're right. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's funny because they say that suppressing speech is a threat to democracy when actually the, the First Amendment is protecting us from the democracy. It's the democratically elected Congress that we're being protected from by the First Amendment. Right. Um, but anyway, well, listen, we always link to your books on the show notes page. You had mentioned that you've got this new one coming out. Is it still December? December 13th. Already available for pre-order, by the way, from Amazon. So. In case you're interested, take a look. It's got nice blurbs. It's got a beautiful jacket. And it's, I think, my best book. I've never said that about my previous books, but I think this is the best one. So hmm. I'm really looking forward to its appearance. There's going to be an audio version, too. Why don't you say the title so we get it right? Uh, it's called The Jeffersonians, The Visionary Presidencies of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. There's never been a book on this subject, which I find still incomprehensible. But there you go. That is surprising. So I'm glad you wrote it and not some other people I could think of who'd screw it up. So yeah, um, me too. All right. Well, listen, I appreciate you spending so much time with me and we'll link to the new book. And I've just got politically incorrect guide to the constitution as a permanent part of the show notes page. So we'll link to that and James Madison and the making of America as well. And hope to talk to you again soon. Very good. All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. Don't forget that if you haven't already, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. There's all kinds of additional content there, including my online courses, the first of which has already been uploaded and a lot more to come. So that's patreon.com slash Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Also, if you haven't downloaded a free copy of my ebook, it's the Fed Stupid, then just go to itsthefedstupid.com and download a free copy for yourself. It's also available in paperback at that link. And finally, if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.